This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. I'm honored to be in dialogue today with David Horgan. He is a writer and a professional musician. We are here to discuss his new book, Helmi's Shadow, A Journey of Survival from Russia to East Asia to the American West, published by the University of Nevada Press 2021. David, it's a blessing to be in dialogue with you today. Well, Ari, it's an honor for me to be here with you also. Thank you. Can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? Uh, what formative events in your life inspired you to write this book? Well, I grew up in the city of Reno, Nevada, and I was inspired to write this book by by the story of, of my mother's life prior to when she came to Reno. I grew up hearing stories from her as well as from my grandmother when I was very young, although I, they were always very confusing to me. And I never had a, a very clear picture of what their lives were like. I knew that they were Russian Jews who had come to the United States after World War II. It wasn't until very late in my mother's life that I actually sat her down and interviewed her several times. And I feel very fortunate that I did that because that those interviews gave me a lot more detail about her life story. And 21 years ago when she died, uh, it was very interesting to me at her memorial service that we held in Reno quite a number of people, including people who had known her for the 40 years that she had lived in Reno, came up to me and we had put a very sketchy obituary in the newspaper. And people came up to me and to my older brother saying to us, they had known my mother for decades and had never known any of these details about her past life. And in fact, she had spoken very little about it to her longtime friends. And I think the impetus for the book began really right then as I was telling people what I knew and I realized how much more I didn't know. And after a few more years, just a couple of years after that, it dawned on me that there was a wonderful story to be told here if I could fill in more of the information to corroborate the things I had heard from my mother and my grandmother and and hopefully add more information. And I began a, a research process and the research process was very rewarding to me. And I realized eventually that I had a story that, that could and should, if I did it properly, become a, a full length book, which finally it did, <laughs> took a long time. 
but I, I finally had a, a, a book that I felt good about. What are the primary themes in this book? What message does this book convey? Well, I suppose in terms of primary theme, I mean, it's a story of survival. They, they were Russian Jews who lived in the Far East under very difficult circumstances. My grandmother had mostly grew up in Manchuria, northern China, and she raised my mother in Shanghai in the 1920s and 30s. And, and they, were, they were impoverished. They had, they, they had a very difficult time surviving along with a few of, of their other relatives. And then they lived in Japan all through World War II, interestingly enough. And so, so definitely it's a story of survival, but it's a story of resilience and adaptability. And really it's about identity. It's about what I realized about my mother was she, she was a stateless person her entire life. She never had a, a home. She never had citizenship anywhere and she never had a place she could call truly home. When she came to the United States, she found that she could create a home for herself for the first time in her life and really recreate her identity or in many ways create a true full identity for herself that she had never had. So I think it's a story of of how how we all in in there as we grow and as we grow up and become adults and then live our adult lives how our identities can be either modified or in some cases recreated and she was able to do that for herself and my grandmother also came to the united states and was had a more difficult time um, recreating an identity for herself. So I, I suppose those, in very broad terms, I think those are the main themes. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today? Well, I would, I would love it if people got a sense of what, what kind of book I've written, what is it, what it's about, and that I, I believe it's a dramatic story, and I hope a compelling story. I did not intend to write it as a dry piece of history at all. Although I did, through my years of research, I did include quite a bit of historic, historic, historical information that was interesting to me that provided context for this family saga that I'm telling. Um, it's really an exodus my, my grandmother was born in the Russian Empire in what is now Ukraine, in Odessa, as a matter of fact. And then as a little girl traveled across to northern China with her family, grew up there. But then she raised my mother as a single mother. Uh, she raised her daughter, my mother, in Shanghai and then ended up in Japan. It's this complicated exodus. So it. I hope that people will get a sense of of this moving moving tale that I've told that ends up 
in the American West in the what might seem like an unlikely place, the town of Reno, Nevada. Can you tell us about Helmi? What are her personality attributes? Well, she was a remarkable person, I think. She, she was an only child, but I think it was, it's clear to me from what I knew of her and what I, what I was able to do, learn with some research and talking to other people and, uh, and relatives that I tracked down and people that knew her. She was a, a, a highly intelligent person and she had a wonderful positive outlook on the world despite being raised under very difficult circumstances. And it gave her the ability to trans, in, in a way, transform herself once she came to the United States to become a, a, a full-fledged American. And I realized, uh, and I, you know, I grew up knew, knowing my grandmother as a, as a much more, comp, in many ways, very complicated person. And she was much more affected by her past. She carried much more emotional baggage, I think, because of her particular history. But I have to credit my grandmother with having raised her young daughter in such a way that it gave Helmi, my mother, an opportunity to live a different kind of life than she, my grandmother, whose name was Rochelle, a, a different kind of life than she had had led. So they were both remarkable people, I think. Um, and I do I do feel very fortunate that that I I compelled my mother, my brother and I together to to tell tell us as much as she could of her story late in her life. She didn't really want to, but once she once we had her sat down, starting to answer questions, she was a wonderful storyteller. And much of the book, many, many of the, of the incidents and details that I describe in this book come directly from the stories that she told us. I feel very lucky that I had a, a, a positive enough relationship a really good relationship with her as I grew up and particularly once I was older and I had my own son to raise that I ended up with with a desire and an appreciation for her past life and a, and a real strong desire to learn more about it because uh, I didn't conduct this this interview these interviews with her until I really was in my I didn't begin doing that till I was probably in my my 40s, I think. Can you tell us about Rachel or Rachel? Can you describe her for us? Yes. Rachel was how she always pronounced her name. Uh, she grew up in a Russian family. And, and up, up until about the age of nine, they lived in the city of Odessa, I believe. It, it's very difficult for me to absolutely confirm all the details that we believe are true about her very early life but at any rate she was born around 1896 and in 1905 there was uh, an action against the Jews under the Tsar 
These actions were called pogroms. They were known as pogroms. They were violent actions. And th these occurred periodically down through the years. Um, the czar was looking for a scapegoat for the difficulties he was having economically and socially in the Russian empire. And of course, the Jews, the Jewish population was frequently targeted as a scapegoat for those troubles. And that began again in, in 1905. There was a very serious, very violent incident that took place. And apparently there were these gangs of thugs that were provided lots of vodka and and were encouraged to attack Jewish neighborhoods in the middle of the night. And this did occur in their neighborhood. And they luckily had some Christian neighbors who, who loaned them a Christian icon to put on their door, which saved the family from these gangs of anti-Semitic, uh, real mob, these mobs of anti-Semitic people. And so they fled after that. And there's a long, interesting story about why a number of Jews went eastward. Pl plenty of Jewish people went into Europe if they could, but a significant number went the other direction, eastward into China. And the Russian, the Russian government was at that time negotiating a, a, a major railroad deal with the Chinese to, to finish building the railroad across Manchuria. And the Chinese gave, it's a long story about why and how it occurred, but they, the Russians acquired a strip of land all the way across Manchuria and it included uh, it went right through what was a small village called Harbin. And that became a center of the Russian railroad building operation. And it grew very rapidly into a Russian populated city in Chinese territory, the city of Harbin. And the Jewish population from some of those areas, in, 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 including in what is now Ukraine, were encouraged to travel eastward and be, in effect, pioneers in, in China. And they were allowed to take their families and their possessions and their money and establish lives for themselves in China. And that's what my grandmother's family did. So from about the age of nine or 10, my grandmother, after traveling 4,000 miles across Asia to a completely new and foreign place, but it, it became a relatively comfortable place because of the number of Russians and particularly the number of Jewish people who moved there. It became a, a relatively comfortable place for my grandmother to grow up from about 1905 into the 1920s. Can you tell us about your aunt, Sonia? How was she presented here? Oh, well, she's a character who shows up in Shanghai. So my grandmother eventually had a daughter. And it, 
it's it's a complicated saga, but she had traveled to Japan with a, a uh, with a, a Finnish gentleman who became my the father of this daughter. And then that gentleman, his name was Edward Koskin, he died. And they went, my grandmother took my daughter back to Japan. And for various reasons, the city of Harbin was less comfortable for them. So they, she took my daughter, my grandmother took Helmi to Shanghai, where she had a sister also living. And they pooled their resources and lived in under very difficult circumstances, but they lived in a very poor neighborhood in Shanghai where a number of other uh, Russian speaking people lived. Shanghai was a very international city. And this was in the early 19, mid 1920s say. My, my mother was born in 1923, around 1925. She took, my grandmother took my mother to Shanghai. And it turned out that they had some other relatives there. And one of their relatives was not so poor. This woman named Sonia had married a, a, a wealthy um, American and lived in the wealthy part of the city. And I think they had, didn't have a tremendous amount of contact until things became very, very difficult when the Japanese were invading. And my mother was actually, for a time, she was living alone in Shanghai when she was in high school. And her Aunt Sonia invited her to live temporarily in the attic of her mansion. <laughs> uh, and that's where my mother got a taste of how other people lived. And she became a great reader. And, and Aunt Sonia's home had a, had a vast private library. And one of the great privileges that my mother always described that she had was the free use of the private library in their home. And she read and read and read as many books as she could. And she always said that was the best year that she had growing up, was the year she had living in Aunt Sonia's attic where she could wander downstairs to the library and take a back stack of books back up to her room and, and read. So, so I don't know very much about her about this person, Sonia, but that's who she was. She was a, a, a wealthy relative of my mother's in Shanghai. What does your book reveal about ordinary life in Japanese-occupied Manchukuo? Well, I, my, my research process gave me the opportunity to learn a great deal more. My mother had always described this neighborhood where she lived and the difficult, really, they lived in a tenement building with no hot water and uh, no real, no, no modern plumbing facilities either. Um, the, uh, you know, they, every day the, these Chinese workers would come and pick up what they called honey buckets, which were the, you know, basically the toilets were just these buckets and that they sent downstairs to be carried away, to be taken to be used as compost. 
That's how much of the city of Shanghai operated. And th there was a neighborhood. So the city of Shanghai was divided up into several colonial, internationally controlled neighborhoods, even though the city was 90% Chinese during the 20s and 30s. The city was entirely controlled by foreign colonial interests. And the Americans and the British together shared a district called the International District. Then there was another in zone called the French Concession, that, which bordered the International District. Interestingly enough, this, the streets in the French Concession uh, uh, were were just like the streets in France where you drove on the left side and in the international district, you drove on the right side of the street. They, they, act, they functioned as different, under different foreign governments, even though they were simply neighboring districts in the same city. Most of the labor was done by Chinese people. And the Northern part of the international district where my mother lived was really the poor, one of the poorer districts of, for the foreign com community and that's where she lived and there as the more i read about that and then quite a number of memoirs have been have been written by people who grew up in various circumstances british people american people uh, most many of the memoirs actually are interestingly are written by the sons and daughters of of, of religious missionary people who were there um but in any rate, um, there were opportunities. My, my mother was raised speaking English. My grandmother stressed to her from the time she was tiny that speaking English was probably the most important skill she would have through the rest of her life, which did turn out to be true. She was absolutely right about that. And so she was able to send her to a, a British run school where all the classes were taught in English. And even though Russian was the main language spoken at home, uh, with my mother and grandmother lived with my grandmother's sister and her daughter. But my grandmother also insisted on speaking a lot of English at home. And my mother grew up speaking a very natural English with a slight British accent, which I later learned was known as a Shanghailander accent. Many of the British people who lived most of their lives in Shanghai acquired, a, and if I understand it correctly, it's a slightly softened British accent. It's not as pronounced of an accent as most typical Londoners say, um, but it is, is British sounding. And my mother grew up speaking that British Shanghailander accented English, even though my grandmother herself had a very, very distinct Russian accent. She spoke decent English, but she had a very Russian accent. My mother could easily convince people that she was British. In fact, people assumed she was all her years growing up, especially in her teenage years in Shanghai, because of the way she spoke English. So she it was very interesting for her growing up that way. She was not identified immediately as, a, as Russian the way most of the rest of her relatives were.
what does this book teach us about trauma? Well, that's a that's a very interesting question. And I think, you know, these people lived traumatic lives, certainly, particularly my grandmother, who grew up traumatized in various ways from the time she was very young. I have no, she, 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 my grandmother told us when we were young, she described that pogrom event that I referred to where the in the middle of the night these gangs were attacking people and literally murdering them in their homes because they were jews this was in in the city of odessa i remember when i was young i asked my mother about this and she said well you know your your grandmother who we called her baba our grandmother she said you know she's you can't really believe everything she says my my mother always looked askance at many of the things that her mother talked about. But when later on, when I read up on this, it happened exactly the way my grandmother described. In fact, it was even more frightening and more violent than I had ever known. And I, my brother and I became convinced that she had told us the truth. This is exactly what had happened. And then, then she moved to Northern China and had a comfortable life for approximately 10 years. But then in Japan, she, she had a daughter in Japan and endured some strange circumstances, including a tremendous earthquake that took place in Japan in 1923, the very year that my mother was born. I think it traumatized the entire nation of Japan. Uh, Tens of thousands of people died. It was very, very uh, frightening, I think. And shortly after that, this man that my grandmother had run off with, who she, whom she had actually not ever married, passed away. And my grandmother was forced to raise her daughter as a single child. And suddenly found herself in Shanghai in these really impoverished circumstances. She was traumatized in various ways all through those decades into her adult life. Her way of, of, I think, dealing with it was to make somehow make sure that her daughter was going to live a less traumatized life. And to a large degree, she succeeded. She couldn't prevent everything. They lived, as I say, under very difficult circumstances in Shanghai and then once they went to Japan at the end of the 1930s thinking that that was a better place to live because she had lived there previously my grandmother had lived there briefly previously when my mother had been born suddenly they're in Japan and suddenly World War II began and they were trapped they could not leave they were they were stateless so they were not arrested or interned as as citizens of countries that Japan was at war with, they were left alone, but they did endure really difficult times all through the war, including the last two years of the war when the city of Kobe, where they lived, was heavily, very heavily bombed by the Americans. And they were very lucky to survive those bombings. And that was traumatic, certainly, 
for both of them. And I think they came out, finally, they, they felt that they had miraculously survived when World War II ended and the Americans came in and they had the opportunity to meet some Americans. And again, their, their way of dealing with the trauma was to simply look in a forward direction and make some kind of new life for themselves after these decades of difficulty and and they were lucky they were able to um my mother very interestingly since she had been born in japan during my grandmother's very brief time there in the night in 1923 my mother had a birth certificate showing she was born in Japan. This didn't make her a Japanese citizen at all. It proved that she was born there. Well, the Americans, at, at, when they came in to occupy Japan after the war, had immigration quotas for many countries all over the world, very strict quotas. There was even an immigration quota for Japan, but it was very, very strict. For one thing, you could not be of Japanese descent. But there she was, not of Japanese descent, entirely stateless, with a Japanese birth certificate. So she, in 1946, she was, she was one of the very first people given a visa to come to the United States. In fact, she always said she was number two for that year. And it, she always considered that the best stroke of luck she ever had in her life. She came to the United States on a visa, an immigration visa, and in, in the, in the, toward the end of 1946, and never left. And finally, and after she had married my father and moved to Reno, Nevada, brought my grandmother over. And again, she came to the United States also and never left. And they both considered that to be the the stroke of luck that they'd been waiting for their entire lives. So they were very lucky. They lived through a great deal of trauma, and but they were among the lucky ones to, of, the, of that era, certainly of, of Jewish people living in some of those, some of, some of those places, even, you know, the United States was not admitting Jewish refugees very much, if at all, prior to World War II. And um, they, but they, they were finally able to come to the United States after the war. So they, 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 they survived a great deal of trauma. How did Jews in China perceive Chiang Kai-shek and Mao Zedong? How did they perceive Chinese nationalists and Chinese communists? How did how were Jews perceived by the different sides in the Chinese Civil War? And what was the spectrum of purse of, of opinion among Jews regarding the Chinese Civil War? That, that's a very interesting question. And the impression I had from my mother when we interviewed her was that they paid very little attention to those things themselves. Um, all the, 
in Shanghai, the foreigners really lived lives quite separate from the Chinese population, even though the Chinese people did most of the work and most of the labor. Nobody ever had to, well, not, not nobody, but a great, great many of the foreign population in a place like Shanghai never had to learn to speak Chinese, for example. It was too difficult of a language. And they were able to speak Russian or French or English or any number of other languages, German, Yiddish, among themselves. And the Chinese invented this pidgin kind of hybrid language to communicate with the foreigners. And they lived parallel lives, let's say. Now, obviously, the politics effect did affect everybody. I think during the so during the during the twenties and thirties, the colonial years, you know, the in a place like Shanghai, um, yes, the the nationalists and the communists were forming their factions. But then what happened in the 1930s, the Japanese began to invade. And I think those, those civil war, the, the warring factions that, let, the, that later became the warred against each other, the Chinese, the nationalists and the communists, they, to a large degree, they, they put aside their differences in order to try to do battle with the Japanese. And of course the Japanese really took over and those conflicts were on hold all through the years of Japanese occupation and all through the years of World War II. Now that doesn't mean that that they weren't getting ready to to really fight against each other which certainly as soon as the war was over I think they really went at it and and Shanghai of course was one of the places where places where it occurred. My mother and grandmother were already in Japan at that time. Now, something very interesting occurred in late in the, very late in the 1930s. There was a, there was a tremendous exodus, of course, of Jews out of Europe, if they could get out of, in countries in Europe that were being, that were being occupied by the Germans. And of, of course, as we all know, the Germans were persecuting the Jewish population to, to a horrible degree. And a number of Jews were able to escape eastward and came to Shanghai. And the, the Japanese really who were in control and then together with some, some of the Chinese allowed these Jewish people to come in. And it's very interesting to me that Prior to the war, the Chinese were very tolerant and very welcoming to Jewish people who came in. Um, wealthy Jewish families had been had been populating Shanghai, for instance, going all the way back to the beginning of the 20th century and before. And and then even after the Japanese began to take over, they were very tolerant of the Jewish people who came in and. And once they were, the Japanese were in alliance with the Germans, the Germans tried to get the Japanese to round up the Jews in their territory. And the Japanese were, 
were not very interested in doing this. They did not cooperate with the German requests to do this. Um, even very, very late, even during the war, the Japanese um, sort of shrugged at one point and said, all right, all right, we'll, we'll confine some of these Jews, particularly these European Jews had re who had recently escaped into Shanghai. There were about 20 to 30,000 of them. The Japanese who totally controlled the city of Shanghai through the war decided, okay, we'll confine some Jews to this one neighborhood. But it did not really amount to a ghetto the way it did in the European cities at all. Um, they lived in crowded conditions, but they were not persecuted the way that they were in, in Europe. And, and I think I, it, it's very interesting and very complicated as to why this was, because the Japanese could certainly be brutal and cruel they were extremely brutal and cruel to the Chinese um, and had no qualms about slaughtering people, but they, they did not participate in the slaughter of the Jews, even though they were in alliance with Germany during the war. And it's, it's quite an interesting story why that is. They, I think they're up in the upper echelons of Japanese authority. There seemed, from what I've read, there seemed to have been a belief that if the Japanese actually won the war and established an empire that the Jewish people would be in some way helpful to them, that they wanted to use uh, Jewish people who were smart and, and capable and in many cases uh, uh, major business, major business people and money people want they want the Japanese wanted them on their side or at least some of the Japanese upper echelon thought that way that's one possible reason um, there's it's a very very interesting and complicated story and the, the, so the question you ask raises all a lot of complicated issues but it in terms of my mother and grandmother's experience, they always said they were treated very well by, by Chinese people that they knew in China and, and also by the Japanese. And they didn't make much of a distinction themselves between the nationalists and the Maoists. They, were, they had left China by the time that, that conflict really heated up, as far as, far as I can understand from what I was told. What were the consequences of the October manifesto for Baba? Well, that of course is that, that's what precipitated the Russian revolution. One of the things that precipitated the Russian revolution. And, and it's another very, very complicated <laughs> subject, but um, prior to that, of course, was when the, her family left and, and went to China, along with another, a, a, a number of other Jewish people. What happened 
one of one of the outcomes of the Russian Revolution, of course, was that many of the czarists or people who were referred to as white Russians were fleeing out of what had been czarist Russia. And as the Soviet Union came into being, many of them fled into China. And the city of Harbin, where my grandmother grew up, which had been a haven, really, for Jews, suddenly saw this influx of former czarist people from Russia, white Russians. And those people, not all of them, but many of them, brought with them a very, very strong strain of anti-Semitism. And Harbin became less of a comfortable place. Almost at the same time, there was, there was conflict beginning with the Japanese. The Japanese invasion of Ch China began in Manchuria quite early on in the 1920s, really. And that was enough. So there was pressure coming from the Western side, the, the white Russians coming in who was escaping revolutionary Russia, Japanese invading from the East and, this, and Harbin changed rapidly into a, a, a very difficult place to live. And, and that's partly why there was an exodus from Harbin to whatever place people could get to. One of the few places they could get to with relative ease was the city of Shanghai. It was one of the places where refugees of all kinds could take a boat or take a train, whatever way they could get there step off the dock or step off the train platform without any papers or passport and simply walk into, into the city and live. And so that's what they did. Um, and so even, Indian, even quite a number of white Russians eventually fled also into Shanghai. Shanghai became this microcosm of people from, of all, walks of life from all over that region of the world confined together into uh, and attempting to live side by side uh, together in a, un under tough circumstances. And so that, that whole story is something that I've tried to weave in to this book, although I don't give a, a very a tremendous amount of detail about these things you're asking about, um, although I did I did read up on these things, and I I tried to just provide some of this information as background, the way I'm describing now. But I'm no expert, actually. I don't claim to be an expert on the history of that part part of the world during those decades. Uh, I just did. A, a fair amount of research as a way to figure out what were the circumstances that underlay my mother and grandmother's experience. <clears throat> what befell your grandmother during the 1905 pogroms? Well, as I described, she 
they 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 were lucky in that apparently a Christian family that lived in their same apartment building gave them an icon to put on the door. And if you put a Christian icon on your door, the murdering thugs would pass by and not break in and and murder the family. And they they that's what they were doing to the Jewish population, not just in Odessa, in other places as well, but it, particularly in 1905, it was a, a very murderous event that took place in the city of Odessa. And so they fled very quickly after that. They fled to China, which uh, because of that circumstance of the Rus Russians building the railroad across Manchuria and populating the city of Harbin, that's why they were able to, to uh, emigrate there and live there. What was life like for Jews in Harbin? Well, I think for those years my grandmother grew up, it's, it's often referred to as a, a, a window of a, a liberal moment, a window of opportunity in that part of the world from about 1905 to about 1925. And those happened to be the years that my grandmother was age 10, say, to, to age 20. And so her teenage years and young adult years were relatively comfortable during that 10-year window. And um, I think she never referred to it this way herself. I don't think she... She certainly never related to us that she understood the big historical circumstances very well. But from everything that I read about that time, it definitely was a very fortunate moment for a family to be to be living in the city of Harbin. And as I said, it became much more difficult late in the 1920s into the 19, particularly in the 1930s. And and a great many of the people who had been in Harbin ended up in Shanghai or traveling over to Japan or somewhere else, wherever they could go. How did Jews in China perceive and respond to Japan's atrocities against the Chinese? That's a very good question. And I'm not sure I know the answer to that really well. Um, as I said, my mother and grandmother had were my grand my mother grad, graduated from high school in 1939. That was the year she lived alone in her aunt's her wealthy uh, the the attic of her of the well wealthy home belonging to her aunt. And then my grandmother had gone back to Japan, and when Helmi graduated from high school, finally she went to Japan. She had to give up an offer of a scholarship. To the United States. She was not able to do that. She went to Japan to live with her mother. And they, I think they didn't, they, they certainly, in beginning, at, beginning in 1937, for sure, my mother and grandmother witnessed what the Japanese were doing. And I think along with other, much of the other foreign population, they simply tried to go about their lives 
and felt very fortunate that the Japanese were not treating them the way they were treating the Chinese. And the, the Chinese were not allowed to ride on various streetcar lines once the Japanese took control of, this, of, of the city of Shanghai. The, the, the Chinese were kept out of various city parks, were, were essentially, in, in many parts of the city, the, the Chinese were literally ghettoized in, all, by the Japanese, although the Japanese needed the Chinese to continue to do all the work, all the labor, all the menial labor that, to keep the city operating. And I, so I, I'm sure that my mother and grandmother witnessed all of this. And it was, it was just part of the difficulties that they witnessed as they were living through those decades. And all, all that my mother ever said was that she was felt strangely privileged to not have been treated the way the Chinese were treated and, and the way that the British once the war began, the way the British and Americans were treated when they were locked up in prison camps, in, if they happened to be un, unlucky enough to be stuck in Japan. They, the, my mother and grandmother, because they were stateless, were, were left alone and were treated decently by the Japanese. And she, all, she simply said she felt incredibly fortunate that she saw how brutal the Japanese could be and felt glad that that she and her mother were not being treated that way. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. What was life like in Shanghai for Jews? How was life in Shanghai similar or different to life in Harbin? Well, I think particularly for my, my grand, my mother, of course, never really lived in Harbin. My grandmother who grew up there, she lived a life that was the closest thing she ever had to it, what we would call a middle-class life. I think she went to a, a school where she learned se several languages that she learned English in school and she learned to speak it really well. She always said when she became a young adult, age 19, 20, 21, she was able to go to parties and she started going to nightclubs in Harbin and I think this is where she met that Finnish gentleman that became Mr. Koskin, who became my mother's father a few years later. She, she experienced some of the privileges of a comfortable life. And then by the time she took my mother as a two-year-old to Shanghai and had to raise her there, circumstances were very, very different. They lived really in a, in what we would, my mother always said, here's what you would call it now. You'd call it a slum. We lived in a slum, she would say, with no hot water and no real bathroom and, and pooling their resources with their, 
with my grandmother's sister and her own daughter. What they did was they rented a small building that was owned by an American realty company and sublet all the other units and communicated directly with the Americans because they spoke English. And that was how they were able to survive. They kept one of the units for themselves and made a tiny, tiny profit enough to be able to pay their own rent and buy their own food. Uh, really from mid twenties all the way, all the way through the 1930s, that's how they survived. So very different, very different circumstances uh, from my grandmother, certainly. What does your book teach us about the Jews of Kobe, Japan? How were their stories similar or different to those in Shanghai and Harbin? Well, it's a much more it's a much more unusual story in in one sense that there are memoirs written by Jews who were in Shanghai, particularly particularly those European Jews who came in escaping European cities in the late 1930s. But, but um, there, were, there was a, a very small contingent of Jewish families who, who had been established in Japan in the 1920s. And because my grandmother had gone there with that finished gentleman, Mr. Koskin, who, who was apparently in the pearl trading business, she had known some of these Jewish families. And that is why they went back to Japan right before World War II began. So then they were trapped there through the war along with a number of other Jewish families. Their, their lives were very difficult. And they, I think they, they really congregated together and again, pooled their resources in, in order to survive. The Japanese, apparently tried very hard to take care of these small pockets of stateless foreigners who were, who were trapped in Japan. They, they didn't lock them up. They didn't put them in prison camps. They left them alone and they provided them with very meager rations. But they, my mother always said they were provided with plenty of white rice because the Japanese were trying to get their own population to eat brown rice because it was considered healthier during the war years. There was a surplus of white rice apparently available and very little else in the way of very little meat. Some meager vegetables I gather from some of the, some, you know, some of the uh, truck farmers around the area and there, a, a black market began to flourish during the war, and the fa these families would, would pool together and get what they could from the black market, which essentially meant items that were not officially available, but were available if you could find the right person on the right street corner who was selling what you wanted. And they, they cobbled together an existence. Um, Late in the war, my grandmother actually had access to a, a, a small village over the mountainside behind 
Kobe over the hills. And once the Americans started bombing, my grandmother realized that it would be safer to go, get over there. And they, they rented these rooms in what at that time was a little small resort community. There was a hot springs called Arima. And she was able to rent a small space over there and crammed quite a number of people, quite a number of their friends into this tiny little place. They were able to get there on the last remaining train line that was functioning during some of the heavy bombings, uh, uh, bombings by the Americans. The Americans destroyed a great deal of the city of Kobe along with many other Japanese cities, as we know. And part of that time, during part of that time, my grandmother and mother were able to escape over the hill and be safe from the American bombs. And my little grandmother, I later learned, was in her small way, somewhat heroic in rounding up a lot of their friends and convincing them to go and helping them to get over the hill and essentially hide out in this little village with the hot springs, hide out from the American bombs. So she was resourceful. The all the this group of maybe maybe thirty or forty families, I think, who were trapped in in the city of Kobe, they were very resourceful. And a number of them were actually able to come to the United States after the war. And my mother and grandmother tried to stay in touch with some of those people. Some of them were on the West Coast, close to Reno, and they stayed, they stayed in touch with them uh, if they were also able to come to the United States. Uh, others of them went to Canada, to places like Toronto, and some of them ended up in South America, wherever they could go. Um, not all of them were able to come to the United States. How did Jews in Kobe cope with the American bombing raids of Japan in general and of Kobe in particular? Well, I think that one that what I just described, escaping over the hill to that small small village that had a hot springs where my grandmother was able to rent. I think just really one large single room or maybe two rooms where everybody stayed for a, a period of a couple of weeks, I believe, or maybe it was more like a month. That was one way. Other than that, they, they lived up the hillside from the center of town, the center of the center of Kobe and the Harbor area was the area that was bombed the most heavily, but they described when they would they would see they first they would hear the american bombers coming and we're talking about a, a, a bombing run of a in some cases between four and five hundred american bombers the big ones b-29s flying practically wing to wing so my mother said they would start to come in and the sky would actually grow very dark because of the planes completely blackening out the entire sky and they would start dropping bombs. And if they were, they were caught there for several of the bombings before they were able to go over the hill to that village of Irima, she's described how they would, 
run to the kitchen, put pots and pans over their heads, and then run into the hillside a couple of blocks above their house and hide under the trees with holding pots and pans over their heads as if that would save them if a bomb happened to fall. They were very lucky. Their house actually remained intact, even though, if I understand it, the homes right on either side of them burned because these were incendiary bombs. They were designed to, to start fires once they hit the ground, which they did. They would start these tremendous firestorms. The same kind of bombings that they did, that they discovered were so effective in Germany. They eventually were trying this same technique late in, in the war, mostly 1944 and 1945 in Japan. Um, and then of course, in August of 1945, they received word that two of the Japanese cities had been hit strangely by just one plane dropping one bomb, which had managed to, to, to destroy, you know, the, the entire city of Hiroshima, the entire city of Nagasaki. And they thought this was very strange and difficult to believe news. And the American planes then dropped leaflets on many other Japanese cities, including Kobe, in, in various languages, telling the population that if the emperor did not soon surrender, America was prepared to drop more of these bombs on more cities. And luckily, the surrender did take place, so they didn't drop any more of those atomic bombs. What was life like in Kobe, Japan for Jews prior to World War II? And during World War II, how did Jews in Kobe respond to the Holocaust perpetrated against their brethren in Europe? How did Japan's regime treat Jews in Kobe? How did Hitler and the Axis view Jews living in Japan? Well, I think it took, it took a while for word to reach them in Japan during the war. But here's an interesting facet of my mother's life. Just prior to the war, she went to work for an American travel agency because she spoke several languages very well. And the American travel agency found itself in the position of helping some Jewish refugees who were passing through Japan. And in many cases, they were traveling with what were obviously false papers and they were traveling, pretending to be families, even though they obviously were not actual families. And this was a British travel agency. And she realized she was helping Jewish people who were escaping from Europe. And they were hearing directly from some of these people what was going on in the Jew Jewish cities. And of course, they felt very lucky themselves to not be experiencing that. And as I said before, um, the Japanese were not participating in the, the, the kind of persecution that the Germans wanted them to in terms of how, how to treat the Jews. The Japanese were resisting persecuting Jewish people that way. 
Um, but certainly they heard plenty about it, particularly from these European Jews who were passing through Kobe. Many of them were trying to get to South America. They were not able to get to the United States even prior to the war. Uh, there are many stories of shiploads of Jews even traveling all the way to the to the U.S. and being refused and having to turn around and go back. Um, so it was very difficult for these Jewish people. And, and my mother was really well aware of it because she was working with the travel agency, literally trying to help these people find a place to go. And the Japanese were being very tolerant of these people, allowing them to pass through certain Japanese ports. Kobe was one of the main ports where this activity was taking place. By 1940, certainly 1941, that's, that stopped. The doors were slammed shut in Europe and people weren't getting out anymore. But in, I think, 1939, 39, 38, 39, 40, right in there, they were still able to come through somewhat. Um, so uh, mainly they just felt very fortunate and that and they were well aware of what was going on in the rest of the world in what ways are the stories told in this book typical or atypical of other jews in east asia during world war ii are they are there any known similar experiences among jews in indonesia hong kong philippines burma korea or elsewhere that's a very good question, and I'm not sure. I think from what I've gathered and the other memoirs I've read, that the Exodus route that my family experienced, Manchuria, particularly Harbin, and then Shanghai, and then the city of Kobe, was somewhat common because these were, in their, in their various ways, they were port cities. I mean, Harbin, of course, was entirely inland, but it was a railroad hub, and it was a place where people were invited to, to go. Shanghai was almost unique in its ability to absorb and accept refugees, at least for a period of time, mainly the 1920s and 30s. And Kobe was the main port city, was really the main international port city of Japan and had been so. Now, these other areas of the Far East, um, I just don't think it was nearly as easy for people to come and go. And particularly people who were stateless and didn't have any papers to travel with. But I am not the expert on this at all. Um, in what I've really done my research on is, is on this, the, these particular areas. But, what, but my impression certainly is that these were areas of concentration for refugees of all kinds, and particularly for Jewish refugees. Can you tell us about Sister Winifred and Sister Hyacinth? <laughs> Who, can, can you tell us about them? What role do they play in this book? Well, you're referring to a couple of Catholic nuns in Reno, Nevada, 
who were my teachers <laughs> because my mother married an Irish Catholic. He actually was a man that she met in Japan at, at the end after the war when the Americans came in to occupy. She, re, she was reacquainted with him after she came to the United States. He looked her up in San Francisco where she lived, invited her to visit Reno, which is, was his hometown over the mountain from San Francisco, over the Sierras. She did visit. They had a, a very quick romance. And even though she was Jewish, she, she was not a religious Jew at all. She had no qualms at all, no problem marrying a devout Catholic. She, she agreed to obey all the rules of at that time that you had to agree to in order to marry a Catholic. One of them was, if you have children, you, need, you should send them to a Catholic school. She said, okay, I'll do that, fine. She ended up really thinking the Catholic grammar school, the elementary school we went to, was really good. She liked it. She loved the discipline of the nuns. She loved that we had to wear these pristine uniforms to school every day. She thought that was great. They never asked her, or they tried a little, and they stopped asking her to believe. And my father never asked her to believe in, in any of the Catholic dogma. He was a very, even though he was very devout, he was also very open-minded about things like that. So my brother and I attended Catholic school, and those are two nuns you referred to who were our teachers, who were, they were pretty, they were strict. <laughs> so I have that part of my book, the latter part of my book is in many ways more, more of a memoir from my own point of view about growing up in Reno in this large Irish Catholic family because my father had had relatives, a, a fairly large family established there. So growing up in an Irish Catholic family on one side with, the, with a, this Jewish refugee for a mother and a very Russian Jewish grandmother on the other side. And, uh, and, and, you know, the, these Catholic nuns did try to persuade my mother a few times. And a few priests also made an attempt. And she was very, always very polite and very articulate with them, made it quite clear that she had no interest in the religious side of things. And thank you very much. But she said, you know, we, let's be friends and we'll talk about other things. <laughs> Just not religion. <laughs> Can you tell us about Miss Kunuji? Why is she significant? Oh, well, that's a name um, that came up. My, after my mother married my father, and it was my older brother, I think, was already born. They were able to communicate with my grandmother who was still in Japan. And my mother was now a naturalized American citizen. 
And she was able to, they were able to get my grandmother to come to the United States also on a visa. And she got on a ship and she had always, and I, this, my mother told this story to us. My grandmother made friends apparently with a young Japanese woman who was on the ship with her. And we never knew her name. And I really don't know if she maintained a relationship with this woman or not. All I, the story I heard was that they became friends and maintained some kind of friendship through the early years in Reno. But at any rate, among, among the many documents I've found on, uh, really online, posted online when I was doing research, I found the ship manifest for this. It was actually a freighter. Passengers were able to, to, to get passage on freighters traveling between the US and Japan in those years immediately after World War II. This would have been about 1949, actually. Um, I found the passenger list and the only young Japanese woman on that list was that woman you referred to, Miss Kunugi. And so it had to be her. So when I was relating that incident in the book, I was able to actually use her name, but that's not someone that I've ever been able to make contact with. She's just someone that came up in a story that I was told. And so I included that detail. I, I, I tried to include as much of the detail related to these incidents as I could from the notes that I took from interviews with my mother and including uh, a couple of video interviews that I did with my mother very shortly before she died. That's where I got a lot of these details. Can you tell us about Solomon Cooper? Well, the name Solomon Cooper, he would be my great-grandfather. He was my grandmother, Rochelle's father. And as far as we know, his prof he, he was in the medical profession. We believe that he was a doctor. She always referred to him that way in Odessa and then later in Harbin when they fled eastward to China. And then they, uh, my great-grandfather and grandmother, great-grandmother, whose name was Fega, they ended up coming also to Shanghai when life became difficult in Harbin. And at some point, Solomon died. And the, it's interesting that the last name was Cooper. They, she always pronounced it Cooper. And she spelled it C-O-O-P-E-R, same as the British Cooper, which apparently that name derives from barrel makers in, in England or somewhere. The Russian version was more like Cooper and has nothing to do with barrel makers and somehow became anglicized at some point to be the same name. Um, that was the last name. But anyway, he, I, I believe he died in Shanghai, I believe. And then my great-grandmother, Fega, actually 
lived to be very elderly and she emigrated to Israel and died in Israel, probably in the early 1950s. I don't know much about her. I certainly know very little about Solomon. We were not told much. And my mother just remembered them as her grandparents who came to live with them in Shanghai. Uh, she didn't really know them very well either. What can you tell us about Colonel McNash? Well, he was one of the American military people who came in with the American armed forces after the Japanese surrender. And my mother went to work for the American army because of her language skills. And she had also, she had really good secretarial skills, she, typing shorthand that she had learned in, in high school, actually in Shanghai. The girls at this British school were taught these subjects because that was one of the few professions that the women of that era could, could readily enter. So she became a secretary for some of the American military officers in Kobe. And that was one of her bosses. And it was very fortunate mm -hmm. for her because they ended up helping her in her effort to get acquire an American visa and helped her to discover that her having been born in Japan was the greatest piece of luck to enable her to be to come to the United States very soon after the war was over. So he he, uh, he was one of the American military people. What befell Rebecca and Israel in Stalin's labor camps? Well, my grandmother had several siblings growing up in Harbin, and she lost touch with some of them after she traveled to Shanghai. Her older sister, Anna, had gone to Shanghai and she lived, she and my mother lived with her older sister, Anna, for quite a few years in Shanghai. But several of the other siblings had stayed behind in Harbin. And in fact, two of her siblings, one named Rebecca and a younger brother named Israel, became enamored of the, new, the newly founded Soviet Union, as a, a number of Jews did. They thought that this newly created state, that this, this dream of a true socialist state was going to be a good thing. And they accepted the invitation from the Stalinist government, which finally, you know, became the, the government of, of the Soviet Union to return to what was Russia. The only way you could re be reinstated as a Russian citizen was to come back and become a Soviet citizen. Any, any Russians who had left prior to the revolution were stripped of their citizenship. The Soviets made that very clear. You were no longer a citizen here un unless you came back and became a Soviet citizen. And as far as we understand, both of those siblings, Rebecca and Israel, decided to do this. They thought this would be a good thing to do. What happened to quite a number of 
people, particularly Jews, not just Jews, who went back, found that they were somehow not considered desirable as citizens, and they were arrested and interned in this vast network of prison camps, the famous gulag. And as far as anyone knows, that's what happened to them, and they they perished in, the, in those prison camps. And my grandmother, very, very late in her life, actually received some kind of document eventually from the Soviet Union through the American consulate. This came to her in Reno saying that some item of property of her sister's was available to be, to be uh, claimed if she would come to the Soviet Union and take it. And see, she simply said, not in a million years would I go there. I don't care what it is. You couldn't drag me there. So she, of course she never went. Um, so yeah, that's a very sad example of what happened to literally millions of people. The, Stalin, the Stalinist regime killed as many or more than the Nazis did, I think. When all was, if they ever get around to a full count, which they may never. Wow. Can you tell us about Helmi's stroke? When did this occur and what were the ramifications? Oh, well, she, she, she lived, she, she was a very healthy person. We all assumed she would live a long time, but at age 78, she suddenly suffered a stroke and it was very serious and it led to a number of complications and she she only lived another two months and uh then suddenly she was gone and i had my i had conducted my last interview with her only about let's see that was early 2002 late about a year prior to that I had conducted my last interview with her. I had visited her several times, even closer to the time of her stroke. But I'd conducted my last video interview with her only a year before. And it was a shock to everyone that, that, that suddenly she was gone. And uh, the ramification really for me was, as I said earlier, this realization suddenly that there was a story here that nobody really knew including her longtime friends and that only my brother and I knew and my brother was quick to say to me that I knew more of it than he did and that if and I since I I'm the one who had experience as a writer that if it was ever going to be told the job would fall to me and and he encouraged me to take up this, take up the mantle and tell this tale, which I, I eventually did. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book? Well, it was, it was in many ways, I was surprised that I actually finished it because I was working on it for years. And then the, my publisher, which is the University of Nevada Press, 
and they actually are based in Reno, Nevada. And they've been, that's a long time, highly regarded, small publisher, but um, they were very eager to publish this book and I was excited to have them handle it. It seemed like the perfect home. So I was thrilled to, to have it out. And I've done quite a number of, of uh, appearances at book clubs and readings and quite a few uh, online forums and conversations similar to this. The reception, I have to say, has just been wonderful. Um, I do feel as though the job I set out to do, which was to present this, what I feel is a very highly dramatic and compelling story, I, I feel that I did the job well enough so that it is being received that way. And so I've, I've been occupied with trying to help spread the word about the book. And again, I'm very grateful to you, Ari, for, for helping me to do that in this case. Um, but I've also, and I've returned largely to my life as a musician, which has been ongoing actually their entire time. Um, and and I'm, I've got a few writing projects. I've got a few ideas for some shorter form writing projects to pursue as well. So um, my, my life is just ongoing really in all the ways that it was, but I, this, this book project, which was hanging over me for quite a few years is finally out the door and living its own life in the world. As we bring our dialogue to, today to a close, I'm your host, Ari Barbalat on the New Books Network. I've been in dialogue with David Horgan. He is the author of Helmi's Shadow, A Journey of Survival from Russia to East Asia to the American West, published by University of Nevada Press 2021. David is a writer and a professional musician. Thank you. Thank you, Ari. It's been a pleasure.